0: talking about it this is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML
1: hey it's Hamilton today I'm Curtis Thompson Scott's son Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard are in the newsroom Will Willerskin is in the cloud Justin Trudeau has canceled the emergencies act wait a minute did I miss Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger Here's Scott
2: Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 900. CHM. I'm Scott Thompson and Big Ben Strawn behind the board today. Uh, it's another. Uh, it's another incredible day in the world and, and a tragic day. Russia has invaded Ukraine, uh, as obviously Diane and Dave are mentioning on the news. Uh, Diana and Dave are mentioning on the news, and it, it's um, it's not like we didn't see this coming. It's not like it wasn't predicted. I mean, you know, President Biden has been saying for the last several days that obviously an attack on Ukraine by Russia is imminent. Um, it, when this all started, it was about uh, Putin saying it was about going in and, and helping a couple of breakaway uh, states, a couple of breakaway regions rather uh, in Ukraine. And now it it turns out like they're coming in from all angles and, um, Taken over uh, airport and um, and and moving in towards the capital city, uh, and also have uh, have taken uh, possession of Chernobyl, the nuclear facility there. So, uh, you know, not a good day, not a good day uh, for democracy. Uh, that is for sure. And the sad part is, there's really nothing that the rest of the world can do, except load up um, military and what have you. Um, uh, along the borders of the NATO countries that border on the doorstep of of Ukraine, uh, because Ukraine is not a uh, a member of NATO and still has close alliance to Russia, it's a very, very, very difficult situation. And Putin has made it known that if anybody goes in there and tries to uh defend ukraine for lack of a better phrase uh that there will be, there will be catastrophic circumstances which you know he's talking about world war 3 man so uh it's very sad that uh, all we can do is offer crippling sanctions which will take quite a while from what i understand to uh to develop but we'll certainly talk about that over the course of the day and and what the options are uh but it certainly looks at this point like uh russia is um is free to go in. And unfortunately, Ukraine has to fend for itself other than uh, any military equipment and such we can supply and uh, reinforcements along the border with NATO countries uh, and Ukraine. So uh, we'll give you updates on that throughout the course of the afternoon. Uh, and um, as I mentioned, President Biden has spoke just a little earlier. Uh, so we'll rehash some of that uh, with you as well. Uh, I'm gonna take a look at how uh, the sanctions will, will harm Russia in any way. How much trade is actually going on between Canada and Russia? We'll touch on all of that and again um, uh, Biden's response uh especially to capturing uh, other areas, which um, many thought that he would stay away from. Uh, and then coming up, of course, at 5 o'clock, we'll give you a chance to uh, win your way to see Rod Stewart. Also, uh, after that, Daryl Brooker is going to be joining as CEO of Ipsos. Fascinating polling today. Uh, 52% say the prime minister's divisive rhetoric uh, was responsible for what we saw happen in Ottawa, 43% of Canadians approved the way he handled the three-week process. However, a greater number, 52%, uh, say his divisive rhetoric was responsible. We'll talk to Daryl Bricker about that coming up a little later on. Also, China's play in all of this in regard to... Uh, Ukraine and Russia and what's going on in, on the border, it appears at this point uh, China, although it is calling for diplomacy here, uh, really doesn't seem to be keeping Russia in check. We'll, t- we'll take a look at that angle as well, uh, coming up a little later on in the show. As you no doubt know, and as we've been covering in the newscast, Russia has initiated a large-scale military attack on Ukraine. Uh, other countries uh, now imposing sanctions, as well as Canada, on Russia uh the united states the united kingdom europe what have you uh however not much in the way of uh, military support other than backing up uh, nato countries along the border of ukraine to talk more about what this means and what these sanctions are all about ian lee is with us associate professor Sprout school of business carlton university and with us now ian thank you for the time i hope you're well and very well thank you scott All right, the Allies are imposing sanctions on Russia. What exactly does that mean? How effective are these sanctions?
3: Um, That's a very, very big question you're asking, uh, Scott. Not trivial, very big, very important, very large. Sanctions have been studied uh, by many different people, including professors and scholars and so forth, because they've been tried around the world for a very long period of time. I'm not going to go through the history, I promise you. Um, I'm going to go very big picture and say that sanctions often fail, but they can be very, very successful if if they're really applied, you know, sock it to me, baby. If you really sock it to them, And we saw this with the the sanctions against South Africa 20 odd years ago, 25 years ago, led by Prime Minister Mulroney at the time, where he convinced large numbers of countries around the world to really impose tough sanctions. So if you have tough sanctions and they're actually really applied without loopholes, they can be extraordinarily successful. Just very quickly in terms of what the Americans just did. They're the largest economy in the world, uh, uh, 25 trillion GDP, 25% of the world. The US and the EU together are about 50% of world GDP. Russia and Russian companies and the oligarchs, which is their name for billionaires, um, have most of their assets uh, when they're not in Russia in Europe. Uh, over the many years, they've they've had a predilection to go to Europe because it's closer and because they have closer relationships with German companies and German people and, and other countries in Europe than they do the Americans. They don't trust the Americans. Now, I've said that um, in terms specifically, and these are the sanctions announced today. And I, I just uh, Biden is doing it right because he's not going to send in the troops. There's no uh, nobody wants a world war with nuclear weapons because Russia has a lot of nukes. So what they did is they cut off the largest Russian bank in the entire Russian society, the Sherbank, and it has one third of total Russian bank assets. Imagine that one bank controls a third of all the banking system. They also went after the second largest bank, the VTB Bank, and they cannot uh, do anything with any American institutions. They can't. They cannot do any transactions. There are parallel. Uh, uh, freezes being imposed, sanctions and blockages being put uh, by the Europeans, by the UK and Europe. And so, although they won't happen, they won't happen overnight, the impact. I suggest to you, Scott, as a former banker, that when you are uh, hit like that, where your banks, that's the, the back, the, the, the financial backbone of any country's economy or the banking system. That's where you put your paycheck. That's where you pay your bills. And when you're shut out of the international economy, um, it has a huge devastating impact. And for your listeners who may think, well, wait a minute, Russia's this huge, gigantic country. How can you go possibly after them? Russia's huge geographically. It has enormous resources, minerals, gold, silver, uranium, oil, gas. But the the the, um, the the act the reality about Russia, it's got about 140 million people, much bigger than Canada in terms of people. Its GDP is smaller than Canada's GDP. It's only, I say only 1.5 trillion. Canada is about two trillion, just to give you a comparative, uh, you know, a comparison. And and I won't go into the history and the, but there's enormous corruption, enormous inefficiencies in Russia. I've taught there several times, as well as Ukraine, and as a result they become a very unproductive and very inefficient economy. Um, and, and so when you have a one point, it's if, if I said to your listeners, do you think that the U.S., if they really decided to go to war with us financially, could they c- cause enormous damage to Canada? You say, well, of course, they're 10 times bigger than Canada. Well, the U.S. is 10 times bigger than Russia, financially GDP. And when you add on the European Union, Okay, because the European Union and the U.S. are 50 percent of world GDP, Mm -hmm. these sanctions, once they really put them in, I mean, and they bite, they're going to cause enormous pain to. Russia now whether that will move the needle with Vladimir Putin's head, who's to know? But for example, they're kicking out Russian students out of the UK. They're closing down the Russian embassy. There's already CNN is reporting that there's great pressure on Biden to kick out all Russian students at all these uh, prestigious universities and to close the Russian embassy. You see, there's sanctions is not just one weapon, one one Mm -hmm. uh, arrow in your quiver. Um, They have multiple multiple weapons. They've shut down a lot of the. Oligarchs, the oligarchs
4: in, in regard
2: the to in, in regard to energy and and food that sort of thing. China said that it will make up for any any loss of sanctions. Is that is that uh, an alternative for them, or is that just talk?
3: It's an alternative. They can mitigate. I didn't say eliminate. They can mitigate the damage. Um, uh, but remember, China is a net importer of food, um, and uh, China only has coal. Uh, that's why China imports oil and gas. Um, and, uh, and anyways, Russia has its own oil and gas. Uh, the, the, so China can mitigate the damage. Let's be clear. They can help out Russia. But r- it, remember, most of Russia, even though it stretches all the way over to the Pacific Ocean, the preponderance of the Russian population is in the western side, the mm-hmm. European side of, of Russia. And China's a long, long way away. And, what um, does this and, mean? And,
2: wh- what does this mean for world? And we've only got about thirty seconds left, Ian. What does this mean for world economies? What does this mean for the rest of the world in the short term?
3: In the short term, I think that Russia will go into a into a very deep recession. Uh, they're already seeing their stock market collapse, and it's certainly going to bring down growth in wet in Europe and U.S. And right now, immediately, concretely, to answer your question. The central banks, Federal Reserve, which was scheduled to raise interest rates imminently, as well as the Bank of Canada, they may postpone by a month or two until things um, become more clear. They may postpone uh, putting through rate increases. But remember, because we're vastly larger, the West, with 50 trillion GDP between Europe and the US, um, we've got a much larger, more diversified uh, and highly, much more highly productive economy than the, I'll be very blunt, than the backward economy of Russia, even with the help of China.
2: Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Thanking you as always, uh, Ian. Be well, take care.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: U.S. President uh, Biden speaking earlier today in a news conference uh, reacting to the invasion, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Many thought that it would just be uh, certain breakaway areas, and uh, and they're virtually getting it from all angles. To talk more about all of this and the United States perspective, Reggie Reggie Cicchini is with us, Washington correspondent for Global News, and with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. How is this playing in the United States, Reggie? Uh do do, do, do Americans support any sort of military action in Ukraine?
5: Uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, Americans are staunchly opposed to any kind of military action within Ukraine proper, uh, but so too is the Biden administration. We have heard uh, for weeks and weeks now this defiant attitude from uh, from the White House uh, that there would be absolutely no American troops a- on the ground. Now, if this were to spill outside of Ukraine's borders, if this were to do something like triggering the Article 5 uh, within the NATO alliance, there would be an obligation from the United States to put troops uh, somewhere within uh, the realm of a NATO country But there are going to be no American troops on the ground. That has been made clear from the beginning, and the president made that clear again on Thursday afternoon.
2: And this is because Ukraine is not a NATO country, although they are building up forces along the borders within those NATO countries.
5: Yeah, they are. Look, there, there, there is uh, an obligation to defend NATO territory, uh, and NATO's territory runs right up towards uh, the border with Russia through the Baltic states. Uh, and we've already heard the president say that there will be additional troop deployments uh, and kind of a redeployment of some troops that are already on the ground in Europe to bolster that NATO defense. Uh, and and while Ukraine is an ally of the West, it is a friendly nation uh, with the West, uh, it does not get any military support with combat troops uh, on the ground. They were given military training. They will continue to be given uh, financial backing and logistic backing, uh, along with intelligence backing. uh, But but they are not going to uh, receive any kind of support uh, from the United States or from any NATO nation uh, when it comes to actual military support on the ground.
2: What about the relationship between Ukraine and Russia? I mean, you hear many people saying on the ground that there are brothers and sisters.
5: And we heard that direct plea from uh, the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky last night when he spoke not only to uh, to Ukrainians, but he spoke to Russian Ukrainians in Russian, trying to say, look, a war in this country is going to have an impact on you and I. We may be Russian, we may be Ukrainian, but this war is going to impact uh, everyone. Uh, and, you know, this kind of plays back into this false narrative and revisionist history that we've heard from Vladimir Putin over the last several days uh, in that Ukraine would never exist had it not been for russia but at the same time you now have a russian military that is actively walking through uh, and decimating certain parts uh, of this country uh, and these sanctions that have been levied on russia if it puts it into a financial squeeze that could make it that much more difficult to repair and rebuild what it ultimately thinks is its own so you know it remains a question here as to what the ultimate goal is from the ukrainian government side and the ukrainian people side this is something that they don't understand and they don't want
2: so, if Ukraine can't defend its uh, d- defend itself with the with the equipment that the allies have given it, uh, then Ukraine will fall. Is that the prediction here, Reggie?
5: There have been some uh, 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 leaders within Europe uh, and European lawmakers who have said that you, we will watch the slow fall uh, of Kiev. But I think that it's worth pointing out that Ukraine has spent the last number of years, uh, especially since the annexation of Crimea, uh, rebuilding its military, retraining its military. Uh, and we've already seen um, a fairly strong defensive uh, motion put forward by the Ukrainian military. There was a Russian operation to try and overtake uh, an airport, a military base just outside of the city of Kiev. Uh, And according to um, observers that are on the ground and intelligence uh, that is able to be gathered, uh, the Ukrainian government, uh, the Ukrainian military pushed back on this Russian troop and retook control of that airport. Is this Mm. something that is going to continue to play out across the country? It's hard to tell. Russia obviously has a much larger size military uh, and could uh, overtake if it wanted to. But there has been uh, significant increase uh, in Ukraine's abilities, uh, and they are putting that on display right now, despite the fact that this is not where they want to be.
2: How concerned is the U.S. uh, in regard to China's reaction, uh, whether they will be supporting Russia or not?
5: Well, I mean, China has given no reaction yet. They haven't come out uh, and condemned uh, the the actions of Vladimir Putin uh, and this military operation that's been carried out for the last eighteen uh, or so hours. Uh, and there could be strategic reasons for that. Russia and Beijing have just signed a multi-billion, multi-multi-billion dollar oil deal that's going to send energy uh, from a Siberian oil line uh, in through China. So there could be, um, you know, geopolitical reasons uh, for China not stepping up. But also, China has often aligned itself with Russia, and it fits into that narrative that we've heard from Joe Biden for the last 400 days of his presidency, that the world is kind of in a situation of democracy versus autocracy. uh, And it would be hard to see how someone like China or potentially North Korea uh, or any of the communist states around the world would be pushing back against a government uh, when Russia has so happily stood up for and financed many of these governments uh, over the last several years. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on
2: all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you.
0: When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXM1. All
2: right. Uh, fascinating as we are at this stage of uh, the global pandemic. And, of course, what happened in um, uh, Ottawa with the uh Ongoing protests and such. Um, uh, polling has now been uh, been done to ask us what we thought of all of this. And according to a new Ipsos poll published uh, today, uh, Canada's uh, Canadians' approval of Justin Trudeau's handling of the uh, convoy blockade was only about seven point higher seven points higher than the protesters. Forty three percent approved of the way Trudeau handled the three week long protests in Ottawa. Thirty six percent supported the way the truckle, truckers handled themselves through the protest and 52 percent say uh the prime minister's divisive rhetoric uh contributed to all of this to find out more let's bring in daryl Brecker, ceo of ipsos polling he is with us now daryl thank you for the time i hope you're doing well
6: doing well i hope you are too
2: You know, Daryl, at the beginning of this, and my goodness, we've been talking about this for uh, two years now, uh, gauging, uh, as Ipsos has been gauging the the temperature of Canadians through this pandemic. At the beginning, we were so united. What the heck happened here? We're so divided, and your your research is proof of that.
6: Yeah, I think what's happened is a combination of things. I mean, uh, we could look at it just through the lens of the pandemic, and uh, I think we'd be missing what's actually going on here. So uh, yeah, as you said, you know we've gone through uh, a few phases with this. Uh, at the very start, it was uh, you know, government approval levels were off the charts at all levels of government that we asked about people's level of, of uh, compliance and desire to comply was very high. But as we've gone through this for the space of two years, a couple of things have accumulated. One of them is the fact that uh, for most of the public, we don't really feel we've been able to get back on track. So a lot of things we're committed to if we simply complied, if we all uh, got in this together and and, uh, and participated in whatever the government asked us to do and our public health officials asked us to do, get to get back on track would get us there. And two, two years on, we're not really back on track. So people have lost a bit of confidence in that. But the other thing is all of the other things that have been accumulated along the way, particularly around issues like, for example, economic anxiety, particularly among people who, who feel that they've disproportionately paid a price as a result of what we've been going through with the pandemic. And that's where we start to see these divisions emerge. They're almost, uh, you know, in, in Canadian politics, it's usually about uh, things like region or province or, you know, how somebody would vote or not vote. But these days, what we're seeing is it's more of a almost like a class divide. But the class is, the class division is, people who are really affected directly by the pandemic and people who've gotten through it quite a bit better.
2: Uh, again, so, uh, again, um, obviously those that paint uh, all of those supporters or those that not supported what happened in Ottawa is, is you do so at your own peril. This is a bit deeper than just the issue that happened in Ottawa.
6: Yeah. In fact, we asked people a, a question um A couple of weeks ago, and we repeated it on this most recent poll, which is um, even though you may not like some of the things that you're seeing at these protests, uh, do you at least sympathize with the frustration that's being uh, expressed? 46% of the people that we interviewed two weeks ago said that. 46% of the people that we entered over the weekend, as this whole thing was wrapping up, said exactly the same thing
2: um in his uh in his speech after uh revoking the emergency act the prime minister uh, emphasized that canadians have to unite um which was kind of surprising after you know three weeks prior to that it was dividing canadians over the last 10 percent that that couldn't be or that didn't want to be vaccinated um are you surprised so many uh are recognizing that the prime minister has thrown fuel on this fire that he's Creative, uh, created a, a divisive
6: attitude. Yeah, 52% of Canadians said that that was the case, which is almost a perfect division <laughs> in terms of public opinion. Hmm. But yeah, there's a lot of people uh, that felt that he wasn't just pointing his finger at uh, individuals that were uh, the most extreme in this, uh, in, in this whole protest, but he was pointing a finger at everybody who happened to disagree with the government's approach. Uh, to managing the pandemic, uh, to you know, doing just about anything, and uh, they took offense, and you can see it in the division that continues on, and and you know that only forty three percent of the Canadian population actually thinks that the prime minister handled the protest well, compared to thirty six percent who are prepared to uh, uh, you know say that uh, the, the, the the protesters themselves uh, acquitted themselves well during this protest, uh, kind of points out what the problem is. What about
2: the provinces? How did they fare in all of this?
6: They do quite a bit better, but uh, the truth is on all of this that nobody's covered in glory. Yeah. Uh, So the provincial governments don't do well. They do a little bit better than the federal government. They do a bit better than the truckers, but uh, uh, just about everybody comes off in this whole thing poorly, including the opposition parties like the Conservative Party, again, did not cover themselves in glory through this.
2: Uh, and just how bizarre is it that we find ourselves where we are in Canadian politics and there's the Conservatives looking for a leader? I mean, you know, uh, it's just incredible how there just doesn't seem to be any opposition at this point.
6: Yeah, and, and also felt like, you know, by going all in with the truckers that they would be getting, uh, you know, they would be aligning themselves with their, uh, with uh, all of Canadian public opinion. And just as the Prime Minister said, uh, you know, uh, what he did and divided the Canadian population The the Conservatives did the same thing on the other side and Hmm. divided the Canadian population. So it didn't work for either one of them.
2: How do you think uh, the country will unite, Daryl?
6: Well, that's that's a really interesting question and something we're going to be polling on as we go forward. But I honestly uh, can't remember a time in which the Canadian population has been so divided. I mean, the last time I can remember something like this was around the Quebec referendum back in 1995. And the the truth on that, it was over a very specific thing. This one is just a general sense that there's a group of the population that feels that things are just not going in their direction. uh, And that they're being left out of Canadian society. And another group that basically is turning around and saying, um, well, you know things are going just fine for us during this pandemic. We've been able to get through it okay. Uh, but you know, I'm really, uh, I'm really affected by uh, the way that this other group of the population is disrupting things in the country. So they look at at it through the lens of of of, uh, of public order. So we've really divided ourselves on that basis, and I think we're going to be seeing more of these conflicts going forward. And and the interesting thing is that it it, it really defies the normal regional uh a normal you know political uh types of definitions it's, it's something else that's going on
2: daryl bricker ceo of ipso's research with the latest on how we feel or felt about the ottawa protest daryl as always thanks for the time be well
6: thank you and you'd be well too
2: a federal court judge has called out efforts by the overseas chinese affairs office to influence and monitor Chinese Canadians here in Canada. To talk more about this, Charles Burton is with a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good to hear from you, Scott. So, what is the objective of the Overseas Chinese Affairs Office? What's it supposed to do?
7: Well, you know, that's the thing. I mean, countries have you know consular offices in foreign countries to look after the interests of their nationals you know if a canadian gets into trouble in in china say uh, they'd send someone to make sure you're okay in prison and inform your family and get your lawyer etc these overseas chinese affairs offices are part of the chinese communist party's united front work department and they don't just engage you know, um, uh, People's Republic of China citizens, People's Republic of China passport holders in Canada, but they see um, that all persons of Chinese ethnic background in our country should be subject to the authority of the Chinese Communist Party and therefore they have quite an extensive operation running out of the embassy in Ottawa and consulates around Canada to try and get uh, persons of Chinese ethnic origin to serve China with espionage or to you know participate in demonstrations uh, counter demonstrations against uh, protests on say the Uyghur genocide or or other issues in in uh, china's international domestic behavior commemorating june 4th so it's an organization which is designed to uh, intimidate and menace uh, persons of chinese origin in canada particularly people who have relatives back in china that could suffer consequences if the canadian Uh, of Chinese origin, say, turns down a demand by the Chinese uh, authorities to engage in some form of espionage or information gathering or making statements supportive of the purposes of the Chinese government here in Canada. So it's a pretty nasty, uh, you know, something that we should not be tolerating in our country and it's a gross violation of the rights that are guaranteed by the Canadian charter and rights and freedoms of, of Canadians in our country who happen to be of a certain ethnic origin. So why do we tolerate this? Well, that's the question. You know, we get so much information about Canadians who feel that they are not being protected by the police from these people. Um, We know, you know, who they are, and they should be declared persona non grata. In other words, if they're diplomats, they should be um, expelled because they're not engaging in proper diplomatic activity. Or if they're not diplomats, then they ought to be subject to... um, uh, you know, courts and accountability for violating Canadian law. You're not allowed to intimidate menace people in our country. Um, but we don't do anything about it, even though CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and the RCMP have both highlighted to our government the problem with this activity going on in Canada, but i think governments have been inclined to say well if we start expelling diplomats uh, from ottawa that they'll start expelling our diplomats from beijing or you know they'll be upset and we'll um, we'll lose some trade deals because they'll want to they'll want to use economic coercion to prevent us from stopping this operation and i think there's some element that you know says oh well those are those are chinese canadians and therefore you know this is what happens kind of thing so there's some element of racial identification there. I, I don't think we would be tolerating it if if uh, similar things were going on to, you know, white people in our country. So there are a lot of elements to it that are very disturbing to me. And so when our independent, thank God, courts uh, determined that this activity is in fact espionage and inconsistent with Canadian law and refused to, to extend a visa to someone who had worked in in that overseas chinese affairs office in china it has made it clear to our government that this activity should not continue at least how significant
2: how significant is it charles that this federal court judge has has presented this does this does this have legs
7: well uh, you know i mean one would hope that that our government would then um abide by um you know, ruling of the court that this activity that this that this association of people associated with it are engaged in espionage, which is what the court determined, and that there should be future cases based on this precedent by um, people who have been subject to um, mistreatment by the overseas Chinese affairs office to to get some of them um, into into prison and and to and to get some diplomats sent home. But, you know, the, as far as I know, the government has not made any response to this, because I think it's uh, it's quite embarrassing for the government to have this highlighted as, as an issue that they seem to be prepared to sweep under the carpet in the interests of protecting trade relations.
2: Especially when the world is as unstable as it is today, which we never even got a chance to talk to, Charles, but we will again. Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Charles, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks very much. Take care.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Global News is continuing its coverage of sex trafficking in in Ontario with the third and final part of the Journey to Justice series. Part three explores programs emphasizing the importance of empowering survivors to be in control of their path forward, whether they choose to go through the court system or not. You'll hear from agencies helping survivors and from one woman who found her own way to heal from her trauma outside of the justice system. The story contains details some may find disturbing. Discretion is advised. Global's Sawyer Bogdan has more.
1: Survivors can feel apprehensive about the justice system as a whole, with so much of their autonomy being taken from them, first by the trafficker and then by the reporting process. When a survivor reports their abuse to the police, it sets off a chain reaction and a process they no longer control. With this in mind, calls have been growing to empower survivors, and one program aims to do just that, regardless of whether or not they choose to pursue charges.
8: Started off as a pilot program where the initiative was let's give these victims and survivors access to their own lawyer to
1: canvas their legal options. In 2018, through the Victims and Vulnerable Persons Division, the Ministry of the Attorney General in Ontario launched a new program providing free legal supports to human trafficking victims. Kelly Beal, a former Crown Attorney, has been the sole legal support running the program since it originally started in 2018.
8: I'm so much more impactful in these girls' lives in this role than I ever was. This is what I believe, prosecuting cases, because I have so much flexibility.
1: Now, instead of an office, she meets survivors wherever they need to be, at a support agency, a hospital, a coffee shop, or even her car. Most restraining orders are for one year, but Beale says the person is notified about it in advance, giving them the opportunity to intimidate a victim before it comes into effect. In 2017, the Ontario government enacted the Prevention of and Remedies for Human Trafficking Act, which allows victims of human trafficking to apply for restraining orders without notifying their trafficker before it's in place if there is immediate or imminent danger.
8: These restraining orders I get immediately within 24, 48 hours, depending on where the victim's at. It might take a little longer. And what's also really important with these restraining orders is that I can get them without notice to the trafficker, which means the trafficker doesn't even know that the victim is working with a lawyer.
1: For Beale, the ability to get victims immediate protection without informing their trafficker is crucial. The restraining order not only grants survivors protection without having to report to the police, but it also flags the person to law enforcement and lays the groundwork should the survivor choose to report in the future.
8: I'm working with the girl behind the scenes without the trafficker knowing. If the trafficker knew that their victim, who could not walk away from the situation on their own, was working with the victim or working with a lawyer, they're really putting themselves in serious danger.
1: While other provinces might provide victims with similar protections, She notes Ontario's strategy is unique in how it helps them navigate the process. Despite the program being linked to the Office of the Attorney General, Beale is not required to disclose any information she receives from victims to the police or the court system without a victim's consent, giving them more autonomy on how they move forward.
8: There's this whole population out there who hate the police, who will not go to the police under any circumstances. And I knew people disliked the police, but I didn't realize how many people did. And I didn't realize how many people were scared. We'll never go to police because they're scared to go to police. And now that's the population that I work with.
1: Bill makes it clear that she never discourages survivors from going to the police, noting that she works in collaboration with law enforcement and helps teach officers about trafficking. Her job never stops, accepting calls from victims seeking legal advice at various stages of their journey, no matter the time or place.
8: It would be great if this program is going to expand with other lawyers doing this role, and at some point, I anticipate it will be. But you know, the biggest hurdle of of making this program permanent, me permanently in this role, that's just like a, I can exhale, like, now what are we going to do?
1: Beyond legal protection, other agencies have different ways to help survivors heal. The Native Women's Association of Canada is taking a more holistic approach in supporting survivors.
8: There's a direct correlation with how Mother Earth and Indigenous women are treated. This is because here on Turtle Island, Indigenous women have a spiritual connection to Mother Earth that is sacred.
1: Bethany Tremblay is the Interim Administrator of the Native Women's Association of Canada's Wabanaki Resiliency Lodge. She says the association has set up a helpline for Indigenous women and girls to be able to call to get spiritual support from grandmothers.
8: One thing is common on their journey to healing. It all stems from trauma and the healing begins with safe connections where they feel seen. Indigenous people, especially our youth, struggle to feel safe and seen due to the history of Canada and in most of the current systems in place.
9: I do not think the trauma ever really goes away, especially because I was sexually abused as a child.
1: For Taylor, reconnecting with her culture has been a key part in her healing journey. Global News has changed Taylor's name and voice to protect her identity.
9: It doesn't really go away, but it's kind of learning how to calm the nervous system. because It's like recreating your nervous system to understand you're in a safe place now. And it's an active, ongoing process.
1: As an Indigenous woman, she says she felt exposed to a lot of sexual violence as a young child. Without a proper support system in place due to intergenerational trauma, Taylor says she felt outcast growing up in Toronto, making her vulnerable to the sex trade.
9: I was targeted because I didn't have a solid family foundation. And you need a solid family foundation in order to be protected in society. I find that's really vital and important.
1: She was 17 when she was trafficked for about a year. He would take me to,
9: you know, hotels, rape me in public. He would, you know, rape me in these hotels and hotels, beat me. And then, you know, he would have people sit outside my home at all hours of the day, making sure I wouldn't get away.
1: When she did manage to get away from her trafficker, Taylor tells Global News going to the police and reporting her abuser was not an option.
9: Times that I have gone to the police for help, like, I've had my own violent interactions with police because of that, and I don't feel safe, and I have never have.
1: With the distrust in the justice system, Taylor looked at reconnecting with her culture to heal.
9: I felt ashamed of it at first. And I felt really nervous, but that was the one thing, like, when I sat in the felt for the first time, I just bawled and I cried and I let it all out. Because without that, like, that feeling of community and connection, you kind of lose this sense of self.
1: Although she says the trauma will never go away, being able to reconnect with her culture and share her story with other survivors has helped her cope. Looking to the future, Taylor says Indigenous women need to be leading the conversation.
9: I think we also need to let Indigenous women do the work. Even though it is hard for us and it's difficult for us, I feel like we need to have our voice heard.
1: Sawyer Bogdan, Global News.
0: Scott thompson isn't satisfied with an answer
8: he'll delve into the issue until he is
0: you're listening to hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's Talk 900 chml
2: russia's invasion of ukraine many thought initially this was just some breakaway uh, regions now it looks like uh, they're coming at ukraine from all angles uh and then before that it was a uh, global pandemic all right let's go for lunch Man, oh, man, uh, how's your head right now? Let's bring in Steve Jordans, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, you too, Scott. Great to be with you again. Uh, before we get uh, to what is happening with Russia and Ukraine, that's a whole other uh, discussion, but but first of all, you know, when this uh, pandemic started, we were so united. It was incredible. We were out there on our, our front steps bashing pots and pans at 7 o'clock for the healthcare workers. Now it seems that we're a country that is completely divided. Uh, certainly, reaction from the protest in Ottawa and what happened there has shown this is more than just truckers and vaccination. Um, h- how healthy is it for us to be this divided we're not only seeing it politically we're seeing it with our families our workplaces what have you
4: yeah it's not healthy at all i mean i almost sometimes think this will be the real shadow of the pandemic that you know once we get on the other side of this i think the the enduring damage will be the damage that's been done to families and, and to friendships and all that over this this division which is you know, really sad. And, and and I will state that, you know, my family is one of those families and, and it really, really haunts me and bothers me. And I don't see how we're going to recover from it, to be honest.
2: How did we go from being so united to where we are?
4: Yeah, I mean, I have I have literally a whole lecture on that. <laughs> but but the short story, I mean, if we if we want a culprit, it's social media. And, and that's for two reasons. Um, social media, first of all, does not have a vetting process to determine what gets there. So there's no fact checkers. There's no reputation of some source if they're if they're presenting false information. Uh, so anything can get there with and seemingly have equal status. But social media also has this multiplicative value where a story can get you know multiplied and, and go viral, as they say, and suddenly within a small period of time become a a very widespread thing that people see from all sorts of different angles. And when we hear the same information repeatedly, it's something called the mirror exposure effect. Every time we hear it, we start to believe it a little more. And so social media has really created this situation where false information, um, especially if it's emotionally grabbing, can ultimately be repeated more than correct information, and, and therefore believed more uh, by a lot of people who, who are you not know, savvy, savvy enough to be able to really detect what's, what's being go, uh, presented in that information. I
2: bet you will be studying this from all angles for a bazillion years, but you bring up a very fascinating point that this is now less about the actual virus and more about our reaction to it and what it has done to our society.
4: Yeah. And, and that's, you know, one, one of the counsels I try to give people is to, as much as we can, let's not get in these fights anymore. Like the, the people who disagree with us for whatever reason, if we can just not talk about it and try to move forward, I think that's the best thing right now, because we're all so dug in in our, in our positions that when we try to have debates, it's not about rationality anymore. It's about people mm-hmm. who see the world in a completely different way. And we always just end up creating more division. So, you know, my hope is a sort of Y2K effect that if we can just sort of walk away and not talk about it and some of these dire predictions that some of the anti-vaxxers and others believe if they just don't happen, then hopefully this can recede in the background. Um, I certainly hope that.
2: Uh, that's interesting with the Y 2 Y2K uh, comparison. It just seems that at this point, we have some of the highest vaccination rates in the world. We should be celebratory as opposed to vilifying.
4: Yeah, yeah. And some of the things are so, it's it's really gotten to a grain, you know, where, what are the protests about? Well, we don't want all these restrictions. Well, the restrictions are going away. Yeah. And and so now it's a matter of, well, I don't want them now, you know, versus three weeks from now. And it's like, really, are we going to create this much division after two years of living this way, you know, over something that that we all want, we all want to get to, and it's just a question of the process from here to there. To me, it doesn't seem to be worth the emotionality that's at play. But I think that's because people are talking, uh, a lot of them, from the emotional part of the brain. It's the emotional part that's really in control for a lot of people now. They're just sick and tired. It's not about rationality. They just want the life they had and they want it now. Uh, and, and that's where a lot of that comes from, I believe. So Steve,
2: obviously we're coming out of hopefully this global pandemic after t- two years. But yeah. now we're faced with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and the threat of a, of a world war. I mean, I don't want to uh, over, uh, you know, uh, explain all of this and, and create any sort of chaos or so. But now it's like we have another crisis to deal with.
4: Yeah, it's it's it really is kind of mind blowing. And, and I don't know if that is part of the the timing from the Russian perspective. If the notion is that we have a world that's exhausted and tired and, and you know, maybe isn't up to. This kind of thing, but it really isn't what any of us needed at this point in time to have another sort of existential threat thrown onto our plate. Um, I know personally, you know, I've been I've been sort of watching this out of my corner of the eye and hoping, like everybody did, that maybe it's a minor play for some turf or maybe there'll be some diplomatic thing. But once um, you actually see the bombs start to fly, the realization hits that this is real, and and the kind of stories that our parents told about World War One, World War Two, yeah. World War Two, we might be. We might be coming close to that time again. And, and that's not what we need right now psychologically.
2: Advice for us trying to get through all of this.
4: Yeah. So, very first bit of advice, and I'm talking to myself as much as anybody here, is, is budget your consumption of the news. Um, when, you know, the more you look at it, the more it will be on your mind, even when you walk away from the news. So, if you can literally say, I'm going to check in with the news every now and then to get my update. But that's it. So I'm going to, you know, keep myself to whatever it may be a half an hour, an hour, or whatever works for you. Um, and then if possible, after the news, if you can change your mind, and, and what I mean by that is just like looking at the TV and when it talks about, you know, this situation creates anxiety, there's other things we look at that create happier states. And so it could be just for laughs, Montreal. It could be a playlist full of favorite songs or something like that. If, if you've just watched the news and you're driving to work, If you can put in that playlist of songs from when you were 16 and sing along with that, that can take your mind away from the stress and and to a better place. And I think we all need to to find our escapes, to find those things that make us feel good and to use them as medicine as much as possible.
2: Whatever your version is of taking the dog for a walk. (laughs) Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, uh, helping us get through where we are in today's world. Steve, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Thank you.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Let's bring in Tim Powers, chairman, Summa Strategies, managing director of Abacus Data, and is with us
10: now. Uh, Tim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Well, the song meant so much more to me today, Scott, because I just Mm. got back from Newfoundland last night. I was there for my mother's 80th birthday, so I'm doing very well. Other than the world falling to pieces... At least I had a good time for a few days.
2: And happy birthday to your mother from us.
10: I will make sure she knows.
2: Uh, Your thoughts on the political reaction uh, to Russia invading Ukraine. It sounds like militarily there's not a heck of a lot we're going to do to help them other than prop up the uh, NATO countries uh, around their border.
10: Yeah, that's my early read on it too, Scott. The one thing, so there's a whole menu of sanctions. I think, what, 58 new ones were announced today. Uh, I guess I'm surprised and uncertain as to why we aren't personally sanctioning Vladimir Putin. I don't know if the prime minister had a good answer to that today. Um, perhaps more will come forward on all of that. But I believe all of our federal politicians, many of our mayors in Ontario at least, uh, and premiers and others are fully on side given uh, the close relationship between Canada and the Ukraine and then the over 1.4 million Ukrainians who live in this, uh, former Ukrainians uh, who live in this country. So there seems to be a strong resolve to support the Ukraine led by Canadian sanctions, whether Canadian military will be involved or not, uh, that uh, the prime minister didn't answer that question earlier today.
2: Obviously, it was just the other day that the Emergencies Act was revoked just uh, shortly after it was actually uh, being used. Mm -hmm. Has Ukraine been a distraction for Justin Trudeau and the Ottawa protests, or has this heightened the need to be prepared for what the real world's all about?
10: Uh, today, I would say it's a distraction and it, uh, because I have not heard much on the Emergencies Act today. Certainly lots of about it yesterday, uh, when it was uh, when it was announced that it was revoked, and then of course Russia rolled into the Ukraine this morning. Um, so right now it's a distraction. I think it comes back into the news cycle because, as was noted yesterday, and is required under legislation, there has to be a review uh, of why it was invoked and and all of the conditions that led to that. And that has to to begin within sixty days. So. Uh, We may have a temporary reprieve from discussing it, as we probably should right now to focus on the Ukraine, but it will make its way back into the news cycle.
2: Uh, how how do you uh, assess what is happening in the world today? We've just come out of or trying to get out of a global pandemic. We certainly know what's been happening in Ottawa for the last three weeks. Uh, and, and now this. Um, are we at a turning point here
10: or is, is the world
2: changing? <sighs>
10: I think most certainly the world has changed through the pandemic uh, and more of the divisions that were uh, boiling up in society are now on the surface, particularly in in Canada. Uh, I think there the, the tensions and anxiety and vulnerabilities that the pandemic has created. The distraction away from other issues has probably allowed Putin to take the posture that he has in the Ukraine because it has been our sole focus Uh, global security based on managing the pandemic, though people, I suppose, have never fully had their eyes off Putin. So you have this mess of things that creates a very anxious time. I think it was the New York Times today, Scott, you probably talked about this already, uh, that said, you know, for the first time in, in 80 years, we're in the midst of a major geopolitical crisis. How that plays out to be determined and how significant it is, but it does have the potential uh, to, to shake up world order. We don't want to overstate that, but I don't think we can under-describe it either.
2: We've certainly seen the division, uh, well, we went from being very united to division at the end of this pandemic. Now we're seeing what's happening to to poor Ukraine. Will this conflict unite us does this get us hey here's what's really important in life here kids
10: it it could because again i don't think there are many people standing with vladimir putin um even though so you can stand against justin trudeau but you probably more comfortably can stand with canada even though justin trudeau may lead canada against vladimir putin so we may have this this unity moment Again, depending on what happens in the Ukraine, and hopefully it can be contained and hopefully it doesn't spread throughout Europe, war can be unifying uh, if uh, if it in fact uh, becomes something that we all feel threatened by here in Canada.
2: Uh, Ukraine is one thing, not a member of NATO. As soon as they try to breach the borders of Ukraine, that will be a completely different scenario, will it not?
10: I think so. Uh, Again, uh, I guess there's a lot of analysis going on as to what does Putin really want here? Is this first sortie going to be it? Is there going to be some saber rattling? Um, Or is this going to be more intense? Is there going to have to be some sort of land-based conflict? How do you resolve it is usually the way people look at these things. So again, not my area of, of expertise, but it's it's not clear what the path to resolution is at the moment, though I'm sure people are looking towards it and hoping it doesn't involve some form of in, enhanced ground conflict in, in Europe. Tim
2: Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing, uh, Managing Director at Abacus Data. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well, Troubling Times.
10: Thank you. Take care, Scott. Bye.
2: Let's bring in Christian Leprac so we can talk for a couple of segments about what is going on with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and is with
11: us now. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon, Scott. It's a difficult day to be well, but uh, this will change the world and go in in the history books. But uh, uh, certainly an interesting day for us to talk. You said this will change the world. Is this a turning point? Well, effectively, Putin is destroying the international rules-based order as we built it after World War II, precisely to avoid the sort of human tragedy and calamity that we saw during the first half of the 20th century, the humanitarian, political, economic, and social dislocation. And part of that premise is a social contract whereby we don't change international boundaries through force uh, coercion so that we don't want to live in a world where might is right And clearly what Putin is showing that he has absolute complete disregard uh, for those basic rules that have kept everybody reasonably safe uh, since the end of World War II. Moreover he is actively destroying the European security architecture after uh, the uh, after the Cold War uh, that is to say by essentially abrogating a basic premise, Of that architecture which is that countries have uh, their own sovereign right to choose for themselves their freedom and their destiny because he clearly has complete disregard for country sovereignty other than dealing with other superpowers such as the united states so all of this is terrible news i think we're either going to find ourselves in a new cold war Uh, Or we're going to find ourselves in a pre-World War II scenario um, of a a rather anarchic world where um, all of a sudden the the way we're going to rule is by who's mightier, who's more powerful, and who's able to coerce the other uh, into doing their bidding. And neither world is a very attractive world.
2: Obviously, Ukraine, not a member of NATO, so no military help, although supplies and such to support. Does that mean it's just a matter of time before Ukraine will fall?
11: That's a good question. And so that's where I take some issue with Oral Brown. So, yes, uh, the Ukrainian military has significant challenges, especially at the strategic level. Uh, the command and control structures, in particular, are quite ossified and have proven themselves stubbornly resilient to reform, seven years of investment by Canada, the UK, and the US to the contrary, notwithstanding. However, tactically the ukrainian military has gotten much better uh, since 2014 and better since 2018 and there's also been a significant increase in spending in resources at their disposal and what people need to remember is that ukraine doesn't need to win it just can't lose and the way it doesn't hmm. lose is by making this really bloody for russia because the principle of treating Ukraine like little Russia is very popular uh, among Russians. And so that's why the narrative is easy to spin and there's lots of uptake in Russia and the Russian population. The war, however, is profoundly unpopular. And so when Russian soldiers start coming back in body bags and Russian mothers go out on the street saying, why are my son, Why is my son dying? Uh, why did my son have to die in this unpopular war that's simply Putin's megalomania then I think it gets trickier for Putin to legitimize this effort. So either we'll see Ukraine collapse and fall relatively quickly. But I think if the Ukrainian military can hold out over the next week and the Ukrainian government can fall out without falling and being replaced by um, a Moscow puppet regime, uh, then there may be some prospects or glimmer of hope.
2: How significant is it that there are allied troops along the borders of NATO countries with Ukraine?
11: um absolutely imperative because we need uh to uh, the only allied option is to contain Russia militarily, politically and economically. But going into uh, Ukraine
2: but going into Ukraine is out of the question. Is that accurate?
11: Uh President Biden made that very clear in his infamous yeah. interview before the Super Bowl where he said that I'm withdrawing all American troops from Ukraine. And I think he did mean all, special ops, military advisors, everybody. Because in his words, if there's contact between American soldiers and Russian soldiers, that could result in World War III. And I think by extension, the same applies to NATO troops. And in case that wasn't enough, Putin reinforced that yesterday in a speech where he said that any interference by outsiders in what is currently transpiring in Ukraine would be met with severe consequences. And I think by that, he meant to signal that Putin is prepared to use tactical or strategic nuclear weapons. So Putin is going all in, and he has to because he's painted himself into the cor- into a corner. He has no other options than to go in and to prevail. So um, it's a very tragic situation that we're in.
2: So you said that if uh, the U.S. military goes in and they're fighting uh, Russian soldiers, that could lead to World War Three. Could this lead to World War Three for not going in?
11: Look, the consequences either way are incalculable. But this is not Kuwait. This is not Serbia or the Balkans. Hmm. This is not Iraq. This is not Afghanistan. We're dealing with a nuclear armed country here. And so the the, the, the there's there are real challenges as a result for military support that we can provide. Uh, the Ukrainians have known for years that they would possibly one day find themselves in that sort of situation. Uh, They had an opportunity to take an alternative route, which would have been, for instance, what's sometimes known as the Finlandization um, of Ukraine. So what Sweden, Finland, Singapore, Israel, a host of smaller countries pursue that live in dangerous neighborhoods, which is to send the signal that you could try to invade us, but it's going to be really, really, really painful if you do. But mm-hmm. the rush, the, the 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 Ukrainian command and control structure uh, it just uh, proved itself stubbornly resilient uh, to reform, and Putin is happy to exploit that now to the fullest. So. We can only hope that it will prove more resilient uh, than many military experts who understand the ins and outs of the Ukrainian um, uh, command and control structure uh, anticipate. Listen to
12: this. Effective immediately, we are ceasing all export permits for Russia and cancelling existing permits. These sanctions are wide-reaching. They will impose severe costs on complicit Russian elites, and they will limit President Putin's ability to continue funding this unjustified invasion. These sanctions will target 58 individuals and entities, including members of the Russian elite and their family members, as well as the Wagner Group and major Russian banks, among others.
2: That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau earlier on today at a news conference talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. With us is Christian Leprack, former, sorry, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. Christian, thank you for uh, sticking around for another break. Uh, On those sanctions, uh, we've heard that from uh, virtually every country, every ally, uh, but we've also heard that China will fill in whatever these sanctions take away. Uh, Is there any accurate accuracy to that, how how much of a bite will these sanctions have?
11: Yeah, they'll obviously have consequences for our own economies, and they will. They risk driving Russia into the hands of China and making Russia a satellite of China. So we need to also think a couple of steps ahead. So Putin knows all this, of course. So this is partially why he's uh, why he's basically rolling the dice here, and basically thinks this he's going to be able to withstand whatever the West is going to impose. Certainly, what we saw earlier this week uh, was pretty homeopathic. So we'll see if we can get a more resolute. Um, uh, 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 effects of the, of the sanctions that are going to be committed to here. I mean, for Canada, it's easy to look like good, smart Canadians here because we have so few political and economic military ties to Russia uh, that the, the obligations on us are relatively minimal. But of course, there are two things that we could do that we're not doing. One of them is there's lots of dirty Russian money floating around the Toronto real estate market, for instance. Mm-hmm. So when is the government going to step up and do what the UK government did and take serious resolve to get that dirty Russian money, both criminal money as well as money from the kleptocratic Russian political elite out of uh, Canadian banks and, uh, and 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 the Canadian economy and Canadian real estate money? And that will require more robust financial legislation, um, including a reforming FinTrack, our financial intelligence agency. The other is going to be even more controversial, which is, of course, that um, the reason why uh, Putin can prosecute this war is that his war chest is effectively fed by European allies that are buying natural gas from Russia. Canada has lots of natural gas that we can liquefy yeah. and we can export to our allies in Europe to substitute for Russian natural gas. But that'll require us to build pipelines. Yes, the coastal gas link to the West Coast, but in particular, a pipeline to the East Coast. And of course, uh, the smug Ontarians and Quebecois will be the first ones to say, we don't want a pipeline running through our backyard. But by saying that, they are of course aiding, abetting and condoning precisely the sort of aggressive behavior in which Putin is engaged. And so we need to think Mm -hmm. in Canada hard about what our strategic priorities are and those strategic priorities must now include getting aggressively into the liquid natural gas business to be able to substitute for russian gas
2: do we think about geopolitics at all when we're closing down canada's gas industry it's like we're willing to take um uh fuel from bad actors yet not willing to help other countries who need us at this point when russia decides they're going to turn off the tap
11: We don't even know how to spell strategy. We are happy in Ontario to import human rights tainted oil, uh, you know, from countries with serious human rights violations in the Middle East, while at the same time, we somehow shut down um, our own pipelines so that we could actually displace some of the oil from the Middle East with our own oil. We have a Biden administration in the United States that shuts down uh, our own pipeline while um, effectively until very recently. Um, supporting the North Stream 2 pipeline to Russia. So there's absolutely no coherence to the strategy that we're engaged in, in part because we think these are all other people's problems and we don't actually need to think strategically in this country. Um, And look, what not thinking strategically has gotten us is precisely the sort of aggression that we see from Russia towards Ukraine, because clearly what Russia is signaling is it has relatively little to fear uh, from the Western alliance and from countries such as Canada. And so I think it's about time that we start changing our tone. You talked about how sanctions against
2: Russia could force them into the arms of China. Could China and Russia became the next become the next superpower? Is this something we have to be concerned about?
11: Yeah, yes and no. Authoritarian regimes always have a hard time getting in bed with one another, especially when they hmm. both have of global aspirations Uh, and so these are sort of marriages of convenience but neither of them ever trusts each other because they never trust anyone other than themselves because of course they themselves I mean the hallmark of authority and regimes is that they lie, steal and cheat at every occasion and so they'll never actually trust each other. I mean we see Putin sort of appeasing China in the sense that he launched this operation after the Olympic Games were over Mm -hmm. so he wouldn't mow uh, the propaganda lawn of the Chinese regime. Uh, But we also see the Chinese, yes, strategically uh, coming out against NATO, but tactically, they're quite concerned about, I think, what Putin is pulling off here, because it'll have serious economic consequences for China. Uh, Plus, China will be looking very carefully at the sanctions that are going to be imposed here. And if those sanctions aren't severe, it will embolden China's ambitions with regards to Taiwan. But I think in the short term, China already has economic troubles as a result of the pandemic. If Putin's invasion may makes those uh, economic troubles worse, for, especially for the global economy, uh, then that'll be bad for the Chinese regime, whose social contract is basically we take away all your freedoms, but in return, you get economic growth and prosperity. Uh, and the Xi regime has not really been able to deliver on that social contract in the way that Chinese expect. And so uh, Putin could make the situation worse. So that's why China has some trepidations about what's going on here. Christian Leprack with us, professor at the
2: Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurie Institute.
11: Always fascinating, Christian. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Have a great afternoon.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Let's talk about uh, the media and uh, COVID-19 and Ottawa protests and how our opinion of traditional media, like what I do and some of the people you watch on television, uh, how it has changed over Uh, this global pandemic. Let's bring in Jeffrey Dvorkin, senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of trusting the news in a digital age. Jeff is with us now, Jeff, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
12: I am well. And I hope you are too, Scott. So far, so good on a very
2: uh, busy news day. We'll say Uh, lots to watch out for. Obviously during the Ottawa protests, we heard lots of from fellow reporters and those on the scene of uh, how they were treated and such. Why do you think there has been a negative opinion now of the media? Did it just start with this uh, pandemic and go from there? How how do you explain the attitude that people have uh, and perhaps the disdain for the traditional media nowadays?
12: The good news is uh, the journalistic culture isn't alone at being demonized by the public. Uh, What's happened, I think, over the last uh, few years is that the internet culture, the digital culture, has allowed people to be critics of all sorts of institutions, not just journalistic institutions. The idea that people have the right to their opinion and to spread their opinion uh, in a kind of populist way has really taken control over uh, our culture. So it's not just journalists um, and media organizations that are under criticism, but all large institutions that seem to be at a kind of distance from the public. So that includes government, of course, universities, uh, churches, uh, and media organizations. And we've all come under a new kind of criticism that has been um, exacerbated by the ease with which people can express an opinion, share an opinion, and and disseminate their ideas. So what this means is, I think, a kind of uh, populist vibe out there where the idea of expertise has become uh, devalued and in some instances undervalued. Um, so I think we're we're living in an environment where uh, the old ways of doing things, where news organizations and journalists uh, were seen to be kind of gatekeepers of what constitutes reliable opinion, and now that's gone. So uh, in fact, in in this digital age, uh, there's no there aren't there aren't any gates anymore. There are, there aren't any fences. So that if your uncle Fred sees something on the internet, he's not gonna check it. He's just gonna share it with you and with uh his other nephews and and he's and he's gonna share it around sometimes I mean, so Jeff is this, this Jeff
2: so Jeff, is this all about I'm right, you're wrong, and I don't want to hear any message that says otherwise. Is that yeah, what this I, is I, all about? I
12: think I think there's a lot of that around um because frankly at a time of great complexity and that's what we're living in it, the world is a lot more complicated than it once was people often look to a kind of sim- simpler way of explaining the world and so that's what that's what's happened people look for uh, a way of understanding what's going on that may be more less complicated than it should be
2: uh, if we are reporting both sides, um, can, can we be accused of picking a side? I mean, aren't you appealing to both?
12: Well, here that's the problem, is that I think that there is a general, an increased dissatisfaction with how journalism is practiced now, partly because the digital culture, the digital economy, has hollowed out journalism in a way that hasn't happened ever before. What's happened is, is that uh, news organizations um, are doing sort of drive-by journalism in a, in a way, and they're not taking the time to put anything in, in context or in the context that's required so that um, we're seeing a lot more um, weather, traffic, and crime. All, all of those are good things. We need to know about them, but we also need to know what the context is. If there is a crime wave, as it were, in your neighborhood. Is it enough just to say that that's going on? Or do we need to do better journalism to explain why it's happened? I'll give you an example. A number of years ago in, in Toledo, Ohio, there was an outbreak of uh, 4 to 6 p.m. break-ins uh, in a couple of neighborhoods. And, of course, the media went crazy and said, uh, kids are gone wild and we need more cops, et cetera, et cetera. One news organization, a local radio station, said, well, why is this happening? And they looked around and they discovered that after-school programs had been canceled. So this actually Mm -hmm. became really an education story and a budget and a city budget story rather than just, you know, crime wave sweeps the the neighborhood and kids are out of control. When that story broke, it somehow people felt, okay, well, at least I've got an explanation of why this is going on and I don't feel so helpless. And I think we need to figure out a way in which we can do better journalism, deeper journalism, and less drive-by journalism.
2: Jeff, I've, I've been doing this for uh, for 38 years. I've voted for every single political party. I consider myself a centrist, although there's many, many listeners out there that might argue that. Um, but that being said, uh, in, and maybe it's me getting older. I'm not sure what it is, Jeff. But I'm detecting that the media has a slant to the left now. And I've never said that in all my life in the media, except for the last few years. Is that accurate or am I way off base and, and just an old fart?
12: <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the club. Mm. Um, I th- think that journalists try very hard to be fair and they also try to be balanced now they're fox news said they're fair and balanced and the implication is right they're fair and balanced and nobody else is and we certainly but,
2: know the u.s where there's cnn on one side and fox on the other but i, I think i always used to think there was less of that in canada we all know that cbc Corinna kind of was sort of to the left and and perhaps maybe ctv a bit to the right of that of our two main networks but to me they seem to be clouding over uh they seem to be going after the same audience do you see that uh,
12: I, I, think, I think you're right. Um, and it would be very... I think what we need to do is figure out why people are so dismissive and distrustful of mainstream news organizations. Uh, when the Conservatives were in power in Ottawa, the CBC was accused of being on the left. Now that the Liberals are in power, we, the CBC gets criticisms saying they're too far on the right it's very subjective and it's pretty hard to say to someone well i don't believe what you what you believe is accurate so i think what we need to do is figure out what is the nature of journalism today i mean this is a larger discussion obviously and i'm glad really glad to have it with you scott because i think what's happened is that journalism now has become like a mile wide and an inch deep and there is less time for news organizations and journalists to do more contextual reporting. Yeah. So, what we're, and part of it is the co- competitive nature of journalism, everybody's in competition with everybody else. But they're also in competition with the internet, and if the internet pops up with something on Instagram or even YouTube or anywhere, uh, that throws all of your careful daily planning out the window, and everybody starts chasing. Well, is this true? Who said it? Can we verify it? What's going on? Throw away what you planned on doing. Let's get something in on the air right away. And I think that part of the part of the issue is, is that. I, I sense that the public is kind of fed up with that um, and their distrust and dislike of the media is because um, the, the, the quality of the information is just a little too thin these days. So it's easy for all of us to say, I don't like what I see on the news or hear on the news or read in the papers. Um, and we are very good now because of the digital culture uh, to be all, we're all critics now um and very few of us ever get the chance to say gee i saw something or i heard something on the radio or saw something on tv last night it was terrific we don't say things like that anymore instead we are in a culture of criticism and cynicism and part of that is affecting how journalists do their job and and the, and the pressure that journalists yeah. have to produce um, one day a couple of years ago there was I was asked to comment on something and uh, I had four TV crews outside my house in downtown Toronto hmm. all lined up to do interviews on the same issue and I, I I was curious about this so I asked the reporters or the or the camera persons how many stories a day are you doing and they were saying if it's only five stories a day I'm lucky
2: let me ask you this, Jeff, because uh, obviously resources are an issue. Um, but I'll cut right to the chase. I think, and and this is just my opinion, I think CTB has made a conscious business strategy decision. To go after the CBC's audience, just like we do in radio and to take that franchise or nibble into that franchise or to out CBC the CBC. And again, I get that as a business decision, but when you have two main networks in a country and they both sort of skew the same way, I think that's one of the reasons you're going to get blowback like we're getting now. Is there any, is there any uh, validity to what I'm
12: saying at all? I think there is, Scott. I think what's happened is is that um, that audience has been fragmented again by digital um, and they're all competing basically for the other's audience. Um, And don't forget global, which actually in many instances, in my opinion, does a pretty good job and in some ways outperforms the two big guns in the media landscape. So I think what we're looking at now is what is, and I just had this discussion today with some colleagues, what is the purpose of a private broadcaster and a public broadcaster in a digital age? Hmm. How should they be similar, and how should they be different, and how do they pursue the idea of doing excellence? And instead they're doing, they're pursuing, I think both the CBC and CTV uh, are pursuing uh, ratings, And that is going, and when the, when the purpose of your journalism is numbers, then you're going to make certain kinds of editorial choices. And that's, that's normal and natural. The question then is, should the CBC be doing the same thing as CTV and global?
2: Fascinating discussion. Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. I could go on with, about this all uh, night, literally, Jeff. Thanks so much for the time. Be well.
12: Anytime. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen
0: to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
2: That is a wrap. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Diana and Dave. Also, thanks to the two Wills and Big Ben for producing. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word.
6: My name is Brian. Our strength, our arsenal is our natural resources. We could have a huge impact on Russia if we had a pipeline for LNG going to the East Coast and the West Coast and supplying the European countries with the resources that we have. We could have such a huge impact. And, you know, Trudeau standing up there and saying how, you know, concerned he is. Well, you know, we could do
10: a lot more. We just failed to do it ourselves. Well said.